Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Caroline Sita, a film and TV critic for the AV Club. And I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and a waterbender. Oh, you know what? I was going to ask you what kind of bender you were. Oh, it's it's so clear to me I'm a waterbender. Yeah. Well, great. I love that. Maybe the the project of this podcast could be figuring out what kind of bender I am, because that was Ooh. one of the questions I had. That is, you know, I'm not quite as ready. When you asked me which two little women you were, mm-hmm. I think I got it pretty right away, but I'm not so sure on this one. Well, I'll have to think about that. Yeah, think about it, because I was, I didn't know. Well, okay, two things to establish up front. One, it's just you and me this week. We've had That's some right. fantastic guests the past couple of episodes, and we have some fantastic guests lined up for the future. But this time around, it's old school, just you and I. And there was something else I was going to acknowledge, but I've already forgotten it. And maybe that's the vibe of the podcast that we're going for today. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it'll be a loopy one. I mean, I, I don't want to jinx it by saying it up front, but... I'm a little hungover today, so... We're recording on 4th of July. That's right. And I, I did an uncharacteristic thing last night and went out with some of the cool kids from my job and took it out of me a little bit. And so. if you hear any fireworks in the background of our records, now you know why. It's just yeah. the space we're in. So the way this podcast works, even when we're slightly loopy and or slightly hungover, is that Ned and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love... Last week, we kicked off our Dev Patel miniseries with his breakthrough debut in Slumdog Millionaire. This week, we are looking at his immediate follow-up film, which we've already hinted at. It is The Last Airbender, M. Night Shyamalan's 2010 big-screen adaptation of the hit Nickelodeon animated series, Avatar The Last Airbender, which now I'm remembering the other thing I was going to say is that Ned is a big fan of the Avatar cartoon series. I, I sure am, am definitely the newbie in this situation. Um, Ned, this movie is very bad. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I was really, I really wanted to like this one. I wanted to be surprised after. Had you seen this before? Nope. First yeah, time. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, I avoided it. Why would I go see it? Everyone said it was one of the worst movies ever made. Yes. And it was an adaptation of a property that was extremely beloved to me. But nevertheless, I, I. I kind of root for the underdog with movies, you know, and and I, after the positive experience of Mary Poppins Returns last week, I was rooting for this movie to win me over, to mm-hmm. for me to come out of it saying, wow, you know, I see some of the issues that made it unsuccessful, but actually, at the heart of it, there's some really neat storytelling. I would not say that was my feeling from watching it. No, similar to you, I was like, this movie cannot be that bad, right? Like, I frequently feel this way. You know, here I am on the podcast, The Defender of Wild Mountain Time, a movie mm-hmm. that everyone said was terrible, and I watched and was like, actually, I loved it. Yeah. And I was hoping, like you, that I would have a similar experience with Last Airbender and say, actually, there's things to like about this. Honestly, it was so much worse than I was expecting. <laughs> it's only an hour, 44 minutes. It's currently on Netflix. I was like, great. I'm just going to pop this on. Like, it'll be a quick, easy watch. It felt like it was three hours long. Like, it felt <laughs> like it was not ending. I've never had a movie of this length feel longer. I probably enjoyed it more than you did. I didn't feel there was nothing to love about this movie or nothing to acknowledge as 
meritorious. You know, I, I think there are some sequences or concepts that have the spark of excitement and cool storytelling under them. Although I would say overwhelmingly, there is kind of a loveless, sad, trudging forward, yes. perfunctory movie. It's a very inert and passive movie. Mm, say more. And actually this morning I was re-watching some of the action scenes just to like remind myself of them. And out of context, I was actually enjoying them more. Mm-hmm. just watching the visuals but i was like i think when you're watching the movie the movie is so inert that by the time it doesn't feel like ooh, the action scenes are perking it up it's like oh god like we're just it like made my brain tune out what was actually happening with the visuals because i was so bored i like couldn't keep paying attention yes one of the things that i perhaps the easiest thing that jumps to mind as commendable in this movie is the uh martial arts stunt work i think that they're the movie centers martial arts fighting styles in the way that the Avatar universe, or the Avatar universe... Yeah, the Avatar, oh my gosh. Baffling. The way that the uh, Avatar universe takes actual existing martial arts and adapts them into this sort of sorcery where you perform different martial arts styles to bend, that is to say, to move elements of whatever... Uh, which, whichever of the four elements you are connected to, uh, which is connected to your birth and place of origin. And I think that the stunt teams they got to design action for this movie did a good job. But I, I will agree that with what you're saying, which is that some actually neat fights are so difficult to invest in. And I don't, I don't think it will be useful to spend this entire podcast just drawing comparisons to the television show because mm-hmm. many people haven't seen the television show and it's going to be me just beating a dead horse saying time and time again like this was a poor adaptation choice but i will it's say the reversal of our in the heights episode where you're now the one being like but actually in the source material it does this better and this better and this better yes yes we have switched seats in that regard um and i will occasionally be like what did you think of this concept mm-hmm without having any of the adaptation idea. But I will say, not a specific choice, but overall, one of the things that makes the show so compelling, and there are many, but it has some of the coolest animated action sequences that are not just the retreading. You you would think, like, it's the same firebender shoots a fireball at a waterbender, and then they send up a water ball to stop it. But they keep innovating what they can do in this world with these powers and with other elements like flying around and these different magical creatures, which we glimpse a bit of in the in the movie. But most importantly, all of the fight scenes in the show are extremely grounded in character, characters' personalities and the choices they make um, and who that puts them in conflict with and when they put themselves or others in danger and where they are in their personality and the development of their character, how they play their way through it, um, which ties into another thing that I think is so fantastic about the show and a reason why it makes some sense to try to adapt the show to a movie. It is, though it is an animated kids show, it is extremely linear and put together in its plot. It is kind of like The Lord of the Rings following one quest with one set of protagonists through a series of different, distinct, but overall 
sort of thematically consistent fantasy realms towards a final goal. And they really have a lot of fantastic character arcs on that show that really, they really develop over the course of the series in a beautiful way. And almost all of them really stick the landing, which is cool. So yeah, to have by comparison a movie where usually when a fight scene comes up, it's preceded by some sort of shorthanded, I don't know, textbook like filler character thing. I mean, like I think of the fight scene with the airbenders breaking out of prison, which is a neat fight scene. I mean, I, I like that it appears to be, it, it at least is styled as, even if it might have some cuts, but it's styled as one sort of continuous shot, much like uh, the musical number Champagne from In the Heights. <laughs> um, but, and that is an adaptation of a plot point from a show, but all of the details that ground you in those characters or make it interesting, like in the show, the Earthbenders are actually imprisoned on like a, basically like an oil rig out in the middle of the water so they can't access earth and then finally the heroes like help them realize they can they bring a bunch of coal from the furnaces up on deck and then it's over for the firebenders it's just they have turned that into something that is so generically like oh i get it the people in prison are now gonna fight their way out okay cool got it so there's nothing to like dig into Let's zoom zoom back a little bit. So for people that don't know, yeah, let's. this is a Nickelodeon animated show. It's an American show, but it's very much inspired by anime, both in its look and sort of its narrative style. Um, it's sort of like an homage to that. that. The show runs from 2005 to 2008. Obviously, Ned's the expert in the show here, but it's my understanding that three seasons, very much like a purposeful contained narrative as in this movie, you've got like book one focusing on the waterbender people. The The setup is that it's a magical world where there's water people, earth people, fire people, and air people. The avatar is the magical, basically like the magical Dalai Lama who can control all four <laughs> elements. He's yeah, been trapped away in ice for a hundred years. He comes out, he's this little kid, and he's got to unite this whole world that's been divided. And book one is about him learning water bending because he already knows air book two is about him learning earth bending and book three season three is about him learning fire or whatever this movie so this movie itself that this is coming out like right the cartoons at a real peak of popularity i think the third season maybe hadn't aired yet as they sort of start conceiving and making the movie Mm -hmm. but the idea was that let's make very much a Lord of the Rings style big action epic thing and we're gonna do three movies. That was really their pitch. They br- they briefly considered filming them back to back the way the Lord of the Rings actually did. Hmm. Um, and then they were sort of like hesitant to actually go all in on that. So like, let's just make one and see how it goes. And so they essentially just adapt the first season of the show, which with the hopes of adapting the next two seasons into two more movies, this movie comes out actually makes a decent amount of money, but is one of the worst received movies like ever made. And so they ultimately decide not to make the next two movies. And we're left with this very strange movie that feels like it has so much plot, but then at the same time, in no way feels like a complete story. And it's sort of like, <laughs> I don't quite know what to do with any of that. Yeah. Yeah, which is what's going to happen if what you do is season one of a television show, because you have lots of things that you need to pack in. In yeah. order to arrive at the place you need to arrive at. And yet you will not have hit any of the largest and most important, or you will have hit almost none of the largest and most important emotional beats 
of that story you're setting up to tell. Now, I've seen, I think, maybe the first five or six episodes of the show like a couple years ago because many people in my life have told me it's great, but I think you in particular, I very much associate you with being a real, uh, like, what am I trying to say? A preacher? A real, you're spreading the gospel. An evangelist? Of, I'm <laughs> always evangelist, looking for this yes. word, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I checked out, I, I did really enjoy the first five or six. It does have that sort of, it is definitely a show aimed at like a younger audience, even if it has the artistry that people of all ages can appreciate it. And I think that the pacing of it, I didn't fully convince me to stick with it, although I did enjoy what I saw. But can you just lay out like what you think makes this animated show so great like why you recommend that people check it out wow i'm not sure if i could do it briefly (laughs) we might need hours because i think it is truly my favorite television show of all time edging out twilight zone and dark Mm. but i would say that one of the things that it seems like Shyamalan might have thought was a weakness of the show which is its sort of uh, refusal to get bogged down in heaviness and its inclusion of somewhat goofy children's humor, it brings people in that way, and it is not ashamed to be a goofy kids movie, and yet its philosophical and political and emotional storytelling ambitions are so lofty. It's, it's, it, it takes on so much that I think you see represented in children's entertainment so rarely, and explores it in such a good I think, nuanced way, things like, I mean, (laughs) now I'm just going to try to, I feel like in order to make this point, I end up just naming the serious things, but things like genocide and cultural supremacy and colonialism and reincarnation and the nature of the universe and trust and community building and all these, it's takes on so many themes and handles them so well while telling a consistent story. It uses its given world conceit in such an exciting way and really picks it apart. The animation is, honestly, like if you look at like how many frames they could do, how detailed they can get, it's a little rudimentary. And you really see that, you really notice that when you watch the sequel series, Mm -hmm. um, Legend of Korra, which continues... With a show that's aimed, I think, more at teenagers, takes place, I think, uh, about 50 to 60 years later in the world and had a probably a much larger animation budget. And then then when you go back and watch Avatar The Last Airbender, you can see that it's a little basic sometimes, but they still really manage to create these beautiful visuals and it puts in action that I don't think anybody could sneer at. I think the action is just terrific. Uh, and the characters are funny and extremely endearing and yeah, there's all these, there's just, there's just so much to love about this show. Mm -hmm. Which sadly, you know what? I actually will say in watching this movie, the premise of Avatar is so interesting and fun that there were moments where I was like, Ooh, I love like anything where it's like, Ooh, here's four kingdoms and they all have different colors and different powers and different vibes. Like I love that stuff. I love when everything's neatly organized like that. So even watching this terrible, like very serious, very slow, very jumpy in its editing and just confusing in its exposition movie, there were still moments where I was like, ooh, I like still feel that little pull of like, but this is such a good idea. And maybe that is 
the best selling point for the show itself is that even within this terrible movie, you can occasionally get a glimmer of what I imagine is so great in a in a TV, you know, time frame and, and world. Yes, imagine how in the fullness of time over those shows, they really get to explore what those four cultures look like as non monolithic, non homogenous, interesting, nuanced cultures with politics and interpersonal complications and yeah i i think the i think it's my favorite fantasy world i think it's my favorite sort of premise mm-hmm. for a fantasy world i mean you know i feel like every time a new property like game of thrones comes out and people are like okay your choice would you want to live in lord of the rings in harry potter i mean if you say game of thrones you're a fool because it's clearly a miserable world filled <laughs> with miserable people but for me it's this one absolutely like if it was like you know, if someone said, you can go inhabit any fantasy world tomorrow and you'll have the powers, etc., I, I would... It would be Avatar. Would you totally. want to live in the southern waterbending world or the northern waterbending world? Uh, the northern, like, king... The north The north is, like, the kingdom, right? And the south yes. is more, like, nomadic or a smaller igloo setup. Well, because the show is um, such a travel adventure, they go all over the world. I think I'd probably want to be some sort of traveling water nomad. Sure. And there are waterbenders out there in the world, like this. these... <laughs> Sort of uh, proto hillbilly swamp waterbenders that they meet in a Whoa. jungle. Oh, I just assumed you had to live in the ice if you were a waterbender. You see, the world is, it's a lot, it goes a lot deeper, buddy. Than I imagined. Yeah. Okay, let's do a little bit. So, this movie, I think, you know, at the time when this movie came out, everyone was trying to promote it to their best of their ability, including our dev, who, of course, we have to get into. Yeah. I think in retrospect, it's pretty clear that this was not the movie anyone intended or wanted to make. I don't know if a full story has ever come out in terms of exactly what went wrong. It seems like there were just kind of a snowball effect of people that had good intentions just slowly getting watered down. Um, the story is that M. Night Shyamalan's daughter was a big fan of the series, so he gets the idea to adapt it. I think then there was a lot of conflict of like, do we make this a serious Lord of the Rings style thing for all ages? Do we keep it as more of a kid's property? Which I think gets to the weird tone of this being it's a PG movie, but it's so serious, like there's no comedy at all. This is also an incredibly weird place in M. Night Shyamalan's career. He kind of bursts onto the scene with Sixth Sense in 1999. Then he does Unbreakable. Great. Everybody loves it. He does Signs. Great. Everybody loves it. He does The Village. Everyone's like, wait, oh, we're not so (laughs) sure about this guy anymore. He does The Lady in the Water. Everyone's like, oh, no, 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 no. We can't be with Edmund Shyamalan. Then he does The Happening, a movie that I saw in theaters that everyone was really like, no, there's no way it can get worse from here. And then his next two movies are... The Last Airbender and After Earth, both both of which are like a hold my beer to how bad the happening <laughs> is, <laughs> which I don't feel so bad making fun of this now because I do think Shyamalan has had he's like had an upswing. He did this smaller horror movie called The Visit that people were really into. He's done Split and Glass, that sort of whole universe that people were mixed on Glass, but I feel like they were into Split. And then he's got Old that's coming out this summer. He's kind of gone back to his like smaller scale horror roots feels like he's on the upswing. I don't feel so bad making fun of this very terrible period in his career where he was making, frankly, just movies where no human being acts like a human being. I don't think working with actors is Shyamalan's strong suit as a director. And I think when he's working with a predominantly youthful cast, that really becomes apparent in the last airbender well that's really interesting and thank you for laying out that chronology because it does it does paint an interesting narrative it is it is interesting to think of how his first few movies have some fantastic actors i mean i think Mm -hmm. 
Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson, for instance, are two guys who just tend to turn in extremely strong performances. It is interesting now to surmise that maybe they were doing that on their own while Shyamalan was more attending to things like tone and the pace of the storytelling. And Well, I, I was going to say it is interesting that obviously he starts with Six Sense wasn't his first film, but it was the sort of his first breakthrough film. And obviously Haley yeah. Joe Osmond is a fine there and is a kid actor and is a great kid actor. And I think maybe mm-hmm. that that gave Shyamalan the sense like, okay, I'm great with kid actors, which maybe his follow-up films have proven <laughs> like maybe he kind of lucked out with finding a great kid actor there. And maybe that isn't a skill set that transfers to other films. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's possible. That is an interesting thing to sort of uh, to sort of examine. Like, is he actually sort of doomed from the start in even trying to do this kid-centered movie, or well, is it just whatever the opposite of a labor of love is—a uh, a, a project done because one has agreed to do it? Yeah, and let's talk about like doom from the start. So the first thing that really makes people start to question this movie is that the cast is uh the movie comes out in the summer of 2010 but the cast is announced in december of 2008 at that point in that first announcement the cast is 100 percent white people now this show even though it's an american show it's very much like we said pulling from the anime tradition pretty much all the characters are coded as either inuit or east asian um ang or ong and his world is very much like coded as tibet as we mentioned and so you announce this cast that includes all white people, um, including actually the first person who was cast as Zuko, which is the role that Dev eventually plays in the final film, is Jesse McCartney. Now, do you hmm. remember Jesse McCartney? He was like a pre-Justin Bieber little pop star. Was he like on the Shrek soundtrack? Easily could have been. He had a song called Beautiful Soul that I was like, I think I remember that. And I started playing it. And I was like, oh, I remember every word of this <laughs> Like, little pop ballad that he had. Um, Just a real, you know, like, white blonde Justin Bieber type. Uh And there is a lot of pushback to this casting. I feel like this movie was one of the first times that people really started to discuss, like, whitewashing in a very mainstream way. Where this was not just a small conversation, you know, being had amongst people of color. This was a real pushback of, like, wait, what are you doing here? Like, this is clearly a world that is meant to be... Asian people and you've cast it all white. Now, the official story that gets put out there is that Jesse McCartney's tour dates are conflict with this movie, so he has to drop out and they hire Dev Patel. More recently, apparently Jesse McCartney was on The Masked Singer, and so then this led to another, you know, a round of interviews and stuff with him. And uh-huh. he said his story is that he was pushed out of the movie for quote unquote political reasons. So I suspect that what Uh, happened is that somebody working on Airbender sort of realized we can't do a movie that is all white people. Let's sort of get a different actor in there. (laughs) And so that is how you get Dev Patel in here, which I think also maybe speaks to the fact that Dev Patel, this is his thing coming right off of Slumdog Millionaire, that this maybe speaks to the fact that he is not, that movie is not opening gates for him in the way that equivalent movie might for a white actor, where it feels like we can plug you into a lot of things. Like, it, I feel like it's telling that his next role is something that he had to sort of have a very strange path to getting. Hmm. That is very interesting and a bit of a surprise because I, I remember from the announcement of this movie, from that being one of the only specific things that I could get excited about. I was like, oh, yeah. the extremely nice guy from Slumdog Millionaire yeah. will now be playing a villain. That's that's quite fun. So I was excited to see him in this. It is very interesting to only learn now that he was brought in 
at, at the last minute to I mean and like very last minute. Like Jesse McCartney said he gets let go from the movie like literally like a couple weeks if not days before he was supposed to yeah, he says 3 days before he was supposed to leave for Greenland to start shooting. What? Just this like casting replacement happened. So I think for Dev it also is sort of a last minute thing. Now in the long run, to be fair, I have not seen much of Jesse McCartney's acting career, so maybe he is <laughs> secretly a masterpiece. I have to imagine in the long run, this was a better casting choice, not merely for reasons of representation, but for reasons of acting quality. Because I do think watching this movie, the dev is probably the person that comes across best in this movie. Like, I think he feels, of all the sort of youthful performers in here, he certainly feels the most comfortable on camera. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that quality alone, like when you're with the scene with him, you can kind of breathe. You're like, okay, this feels like I'm watching an actor, not like I'm watching a middle school play where (laughs) I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, they did good at remembering their lines. (laughs) (laughs) He does feel like he's giving a performance, although shall we begin to discuss it? It is not his, does not seem to be his finest performance at times. He has some good scenes. I like the Mm -hmm. scene where he talks to the little earth nation child yeah he's playing to delay it out sorry to interrupt you again but he's playing prince zuko who is um he's sort of like almost like a draco malfoy figure where he's bad but he ultimately feels like he has a sympathetic side he's being pressured by adults in his life he's the prince of the fire nation and he's been sent to hunt for the avatar who think no one thinks is even alive anymore so it's sort of like a a fool's errand he can never accomplish but then oh my gosh the avatar is actually here he's got to capture him to earn his dad's respect very conflicted angsty teen yeah and if they had made three movies and stuck the landing this would be i think arguably the best character to land he has a redemption arc that is as good as redemption arcs get in my opinion in the fullness of time in the show and he's a it's a great performance in the show by dante basco who most people will know as a rufio Mm -hmm. from hook so he has some good scenes but he also has some very bad scenes, I think. There you are think certain Dev does. I think Dev does. I think some of his shouty anger scenes are it doesn't I don't feel that the uh, lines are being broken up and scanned to have any mm. particular meaning. It just seems like they're just coming out loudly. I was shocked that he was doing an American accent in this. I was not expecting yeah. that. I actually thought it was a really good American accent. I was pretty impressed with it. Yeah, no complaints about the accent, I think. Yeah. I I agree with you that I didn't like come away from this being like, oh my God, like it's worth seeing this terrible movie just for Dev's performance. I think he, as much as anybody, gets trapped in the inertness of it and sort of just the lack of humanity to it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think overall, I was just so relieved to have something to hold on to that was, I mean, I really like, and I want to make it clear, like, I don't even think this is a matter of the three the sort of our three main leads, um, you have the kid that plays. So the movie goes with pronunciations that are sort of more inspired by how you would say this in like an Asian dialect, the names, whereas the TV show, I so like the in the movie, they call them Ong, but in the TV show, he's Ang. Is that right? Yes. My understanding is that um, Ong is closer to what would be a Mandarin pronunciation, but I would say there is uh, some mixed feelings among fans and critical fans of the show about this whole concept of trying to honor that tradition and yet Ang slash Ong is not Mandarin. He's Yeah. He's fictional air nomad. But but you I, I agree that they could they could just as easily then have said, well it's fantasy, so 
everyone's white, which they did with the casting, but they pronounced the ugh. Yeah. Uh, to it just leads to a strange thing where the with names are... It's hard to figure yes. out how we should pronounce things on this podcast, but regardless, the main yes, kid... Yes, because all of the names like, are different. More than half of the names have been changed in their pronunciation. Let's go with the movie pronunciations, even okay. though I'm going to slip up. So apologies to comic... I mean, to cartoon fans who feel like we sound crazy saying this, but so you have Noah Ringer as, as Ong, who is not an actor. He's like a real-life martial arts kid, and he has shaved his head, and people had always been like, oh, you look so much like the guy from the Avatar, so that had kind of been his nickname, and so he had kind of had... I don't know if viral fame is the right term, but he had had, he kind of like submits a, you know, a video where it's like, hey, I'm basically like this in real life. Like, I'm kind of like the real life avatar. And they're like, great. So let's cast you in this movie, which I think was definitely the wrong choice for a movie that ultimately, like most of the action is more like posy, sci-fi. Like, you don't need, I think it's more important to be a good actor than a good real life fighter for this role. It would be cool to have both, but it is definitely more important that that he be a character you can invest in, for sure. And then you have Katara, who's played by Nicole Peltz. Um, And then you have her brother, Sokka. Is that how they say it in the movie? Yeah. And they, how do they say in the show? Sokka? Sokka. Soka Saka, played by Jackson Rathbone, who I best know as Jasper from the Twilight series. Sure. They're our sort of main trio, and I would say they are the worst in terms of, like, compelling people to watch. And I want to make it clear, like, I'm not fully blaming them. I think clearly they're not being directed well. I don't think they're being filmed in a super compelling way. And I think if you're not the right person for a role, you just shouldn't be cast for the role. Do you know what I mean? It's not their fault if they're not the best actors in the world. It's someone's fault for elevating them to a status they shouldn't have been. I agree. And I think in comparison to the three of them, Dev just feels so much more like he's giving an actual performance. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's sort of mainly more than anything what makes him stand out for me in this. Well, I think, yeah, if you compare him to them, he is much better cast in his role and clearly came in, you know, ready to work on this to a certain extent. I, unfortunately, I guess, was comparing it with this narrative that I was hopefully but foolishly building up in my mind that this would be, well, that I would like the movie more. And also that this, it would be something I could file under great performances in Trapped in Terrible Movies, which is a category that I just love. And I would say we have at best here a fine performance, Mm -hmm. Trapped in a Terrible Movie. It's really just in comparison to everything else around him. I hear you. That it stands out. Yeah. Um, But I did learn a very fun dev fact while researching for this, which Mm -hmm. is that in real life, Dev himself studied martial arts all while he was growing up. And in fact, in 2004 won the bronze medal at the Action International Martial Arts Association World Championships in Dublin. Wow, <laughs> So Dev. Dev himself, all of the interviews I've read or, you know, things about him really emphasize he was a very, like, energetic, rambunctious child. So I think uh-huh. that there was a big push to, like, okay, let's get you into something where, you know, where you can let out that energy. This kid needs a sport. <laughs> yeah, he needs a sport. And so he ends up going with Taekwondo, eventually becomes a black belt in that. Um, I think Taekwondo is not the style of martial arts that Zuko uses in the movie. So it was sort of a thing where he was still training in a different style and maybe not fully showing off his skills. But mm-hmm. ostensibly, he's bringing some sort of, you know, he both he and then the guy that plays the that plays Ong are both bringing real life, you know, martial arts skills to the movie. I don't know how much that translates to the screen at all. Well, I'd say I did. I did mildly enjoy the scenes where they fought. I thought mm-hmm. those were fun. I like, yeah, they 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 can do decent physical work together. Although actually, I think my favorite scene of them together is when 
Ong is sneaking around Zuko, like kind of yeah, like tiptoeing really behind fun. him. Because, well, first off, it honors a, a thing that is explored more in the show, which is that airbending is, and you do see this in the movie, actually, they do explore this to their credit, that airbending is a lot about evading and redirecting your opponent's mm-hmm. attacks rather than attacking offensively. Now I'm remembering they do get into all of that with, with Master Paku in the in the waterbender tribe. It's but. hard to just remember what any what happens in this movie at all because again it's so dull. It really yeah, is easy to zone out while you're watching it. Slid right out of my brain like water over grease, mm-hmm. you know. So uh so but yes, um I like that it does that scene, but I also think it's one of the moments where you get to explore the fun dynamic of an extremely tall teenager yeah. or twenty something. <laughs> Trying to catch this, like, tiny little boy who's, like, evading him. This was one of the first movies that really made me realize that Dev Patel is tall. I feel like I don't necessarily think of him that way. He's 6'2", at least according to the internet. And I don't know. He he kind of has the presence, I think, of a shorter... Like, he's definitely gawky, but maybe Mm -hmm. because he's so skinny, too. I don't know. I was shocked to learn of Dev's height. But this movie really shows it off, how how much taller he feels than anyone else. Maybe he has some normal guy height energy mm-hmm. when he's sitting down at the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire chair. Yeah. But picture him in the final credits next to Frida Pinto, right? Like yeah, he's, you're right. He's you're a right. tall dude. But yeah, I mean, you can see him doing some of his fight scenes mm-hmm. in moments where they could have used a double. And that's satisfying. Fun addition. Um, okay, so as we're sort of laying out the things that went wrong with this movie. So this was this did kind of have a long production period so i think dev was really only like 18 maybe 19 when he was filming it because it takes a little bit to come out um obviously one of the big things that happened between when this movie started and when it came out is that the movie avatar came out james cameron's avatar which basically forced this movie the show is called avatar the last airbender the movie just changed its changes its name to the last airbender because unexpectedly A movie based on nothing becomes the biggest movie of all time and steals their title like a year before it's said to come out. Yeah, and that's wild. Truly wild. And then the other way that movie Avatar really influences Last Airbender is that Avatar kicks off this huge trend of like, we have to make everything 3D, right? Like Hollywood really responds to Avatar by saying the reason that movie did so well is because it was 3D. Let's oh. convert everything into 3D. So this was the era, you know, Avatar is a movie that was conceived and very purposefully shot for 3d and then hollywood's like great let's take anything that's an action movie and we'll just convert it to 3d oh after yeah the fact. i forgot about that whole period huge, that happened a lot didn't yes, it yes there was a huge run of that i feel like it's it's kind of trickling off now but there was a big run where it was like anything that can be 3d let's make it 3d so they did clash of the titans right away and then last airbender was one of the first ones that they did in the 3D style as well. Now, how that actually affects the movie is that because obviously it's con- it's expensive to convert things into 3D. And so what they tried to do was just make the movie as short as possible. So there would be the least amount of things they would have to convert. What? So rumor has it that there's about 25 to 30 mo- minutes of this movie that were just cut. And I think oh, once you learn that, when you rewatch, it makes a lot of sense that there is so much clunky exposition, so much clunky editing so much just like basic confusion in the structure of what's being laid out. Um, like you have things where it's like it, but it opens with a bunch of text on screen laying out the premise. There is like nonstop narration from Katara explaining things that I am imagining in the longer version were actual scenes, including to a point where she's like, Oh yes. Ong and you know, we flew with Ong and he told us all of his story cut to the next scene. They arrive somewhere and she's like, 
can I ask what your name is? And I'm like, what? <laughs> How do you just gave us narration oh explaining God. his backstory. And now within the world of the movie, you're just asking what his name is. Like none of this makes any sense. So theoretically, there is, you know, if we want to hashtag release the Shyamalan cut, there is theoretically an idea that there's a longer cut of this movie. Although I, I, I don't know if a longer cut of this movie, it might be more sensical. I think mm-hmm. the fundamental building blocks they're working with are sort of sand. And I'm not sure if just adding more sand to the pile would have been a way <laughs> to fix it. It's a, an evocative and I think resonant metaphor for this situation. What you the the fact you just told me immediately makes me think of that scene that I'm sure is a result of that where in these bizarrely tight shots where it looks like they were not in the same place, Jackson Rathbone and No Ringer like propose the structure of the first season being like, Wait a minute, do you think we should go on a road trip to different places and we'll free them as we go? And it literally ends with uh Yasoka saying, Should we try it? And Ang says, Yes, we should. And then they just, like, uh, kind of hand wave that they do that. There's, like, a quick montage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is yeah. no... God, insane. Like, the plot of this movie... I mean, I think I said this before, but it is just both too much and not enough. And that mm-hmm. it feels like, okay, if this is a world where the point is that the Avatar has to learn all these skills, I sort of want that to all happen in one movie. Or if it's only going to be one movie, I need that movie to be a lot better than it is in terms of... <laughs> what they do what do you okay so as a person who knows the show well do you have like a couple things that stick out to you as like these were very bad adaptation choices that they made hmm well one that immediately jumps to mind although it's certainly not the biggest most important thing in the world is that instead of being killed by a sort of an elemental water creature in the process of driving away the fire nation Admiral Zhao is just straight up murdered by four <laughs> random waterbenders, just drowned in the air and then dropped. Uh, that that brutal scene didn't really uh, resonate for me. Uh, I would say that I don't know if this is a bad adaptation choice, but to include the prison break moment, but take away the actual thing that makes it make sense where the earthbenders have been sort of stripped of their materials Mm -hmm. and instead make it the earthbenders are here with clearly way more than enough power to just wreck shit but they're not fighting i mean i get what they were trying to do with that but i think it's a little bit of a strange vibe i think that overall this is not one particular decision to change this plot element in this way but overall the adaptation choice that it makes that is a mistake is to deliberately slice away all of the funny and mm-hmm. all of the charming and all of the goofy. Yeah, this is because, not a charming movie. No, because it seems to be really operating under the premise that being goofy is going to rob this movie of its gravity. And instead, taking all of that out just robs you of any reason to attach to it or invest in it. And that that is, I think, the fundamental mistake is the idea that in order to be meaningful, the story had to be deadly serious. Mm-hmm. And I think if you watch the show, I mean, I think it's totally reasonable if there's people out there who hate this show. Like, it's not for everyone. But if you watch it and you like it, then I'm sure you will understand that sort of scowling seriousness is not is not the only way to achieve emotional impact. Mm-hmm. Which characters suffer the most from this? Like, which characters are the most different? 
Because it sounds like the brooding seriousness probably is what Dev's, what Zuko is in the show. Is Mm -hmm. that right? Yes. Although you also get enough sort of pratfalls and teenage awkwardness and just sort of comical angst. Yeah. You know what? It's actually not the same because for all that Zuko, and it's brilliant how they can balance this through the first season where he is really playing this role of essentially a sympathetic antagonist, but fully, fully, fully focused on stopping our heroes. It is impressive that they are sometimes making him work as this imposing, dangerous guy who who will, you know, who could go off at any minute and is trying to harm our heroes to balance that with him being an angsty teen whose angst is totally, totally laughable and is always undercut by Uncle Iroh, Uncle Iroh in the movie, who is definitely one of and arguably the, well, he's, he's my personal favorite character from mm-hmm. the show. Um, he's so incredibly funny, uh, and so soulful and so wise and just played beautifully by, uh, the actor Mako, who actually died after doing two of the three seasons. Um, and there's a very beautiful tribute to him in the third season, but, um, incredible performance and the way that that duo works and the way that he guides, but also undercuts Zuko's angst is really fantastic. But, I, I think actually to answer your question, the character who suffers the most is Ang slash Ang mm. because he is he is a extremely goofy, rambunctious, playful young kid. You know, he has the energy of a of a playful twelve year old who is then thrust into this situation and has to grapple that responsibility and doesn't grapple with it by losing the joy and the sort of like worldview that makes him him but he he learns how to step up to challenges so yeah he's not like a badass i mean he does incredibly badass things but but i don't even really know what ong's personality is in the film no it's like sort of serious i mean it is weird there's a moment where he's like oh i had to like run away because they wouldn't let me have a family and it was sort of like I don't know, you seem pretty into this, like, serious hero-saving thing. I don't really know why that would be a problem for you. There was no, like, contrast between little kid thrust into this adult responsibility. He just kind of played, like, a serious kid who would be willing to accept that responsibility. So there's sort of no Mm -hmm. arc for him to go with. And honestly, like, like, to me, it didn't feel like Katara or Soka did anything in this movie. Like, they're just kind of there to just, like, look on. Like, there was – I was like, Ong doesn't need either of you. You're not really helping him with anything. Yeah. Yeah, and they're such wonderful characters in the show as well. Katara is very polarizing, Mm -hmm. which I think has to do with sort of a – I don't want to bust out the misogyny word, but but, – which I think has to do with um, her being a teenage girl. Mm Mm-hmm. And being sort of extremely hopeful and having her set of principles and sometimes getting fussy about them. Um, I think Katara is a wonderful character and Sokka is hysterical and has a really great arc of his own. And just, I mean, he he really, he functions as the comic relief, but not in a way where he has no personality. He, he does both. Um, Which is the yeah, opposite so, of how he is in the movie. I would say Sokka yeah. is the, maybe the... Well, I mean, who's to say what the weakest part is? But Jackson Rathbone is not doing this movie any favors. They make Soka so serious, but then Ong's also serious. There's just no contrast with anyone. Everyone's kind of the same note. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't think that's playing well. There's also, okay, so in addition to the general sort of whitewashing of Asian and Inuit characters, the film also ends up with this strange, and I'm going to give them the credit and say unintentional dynamic where the lead, the like hero protagonists are basically all white people. And then Mm -hmm. the Fire Nation villains are, I mean, sort of all playing they're built they're built to look like they're related to dev like that seems to be how they're cast although you have people like his dad cliff curtis is a maori descent in real life and the uncle character is an iranian american actor um and then you have asif mandiv as admiral zhao which is just sort of jarring in its own right because i'm just so used to him doing comedy on the daily show and he's just such a serious villain here but but i like i like asif mandiv he's committed he's He's committed in this movie but you just end up with this really weird dynamic where essentially all the villains are brown people and all of the Mm -hmm. heroes are white people and obviously m night Shyamalan himself is of indian descent and indian american I'm going to give them the credit and say this wasn't intentional and they were trying to go for a multicultural thing. But I think like so many elements of this movie, they did not think through the optics of what this was becoming. And it's just another like another thing to add on to the fire of unfortunate, you know, angles of this movie. So here's the thing that to continue me not shutting up about the show, a reason why that actually didn't strike me as bothering me as much is. In the fullness of a show, one of the points that it makes quite clearly is while the Fire Nation is run by a violent imperialist, Fire Nation people are not inherently evil. Mm-hmm. Water and Air Nation people are not, and, and Earth Nation are not inherently good. They start you off in expecting to think, okay, fire, red, armor, bad, water, tribe, family, grandma, nice. But they do a fantastic job in some amazing and in sometimes really spine-chilling ways of complicating that whole picture. So I think if you've got to tell the full story, mm-hmm. the I, I, all I will say is that ending up with a with a Fire Nation that is um, cast from Southeast Asian and and Middle Eastern actors would not bother me in the fullness of time because that that's 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 a full and dynamic people. It isn't in the overall story so much an example of it wouldn't so much be like they cast the brown people as the evil people mm-hmm. and the white people as the good people you would still have the issue of they replaced presumably inuit or in like coded as inuit characters with white characters but but i would be excited to continue to see m night Shyamalan's fire nation explore yeah and i happen to like a lot of those actors i as i, I mentioned i like asif manvi i love cliff curtis every time he mm-hmm. shows up in a movie i'm freaking psyched i love to see him uh he's he's i think one of the few people who actually i mean his part is extremely simple he only appears in very few scenes yeah, he's zuko's he, 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 evil dad basically yes, at least as his would, movie presents it yes who uh who is essentially the big bad of the show as it goes along. Like he is the sort of final boss. Uh, and that would have been quite fun to see because he's so dynamic. But I will say he's one of the few people who navigates the style of this movie and still turns in a performance where you're like, wow, I think he did everything he needed to mm-hmm. do in every scene he was in. Yes. Although I think, yes, I would say all the Fire Nation people are definitely – they are also people who are giving what feels like performances that are comfortably comfortable being on camera. But you can also mm-hmm. imagine how much better these performances would be in a movie that was better directed and better shot and allowed them to, you know, 
give fuller yeah. performances, I yeah, would say. Yeah, the, the same actors as the same characters. You could have had something that was so much cooler. Yes. And I don't know if that is the case of, you know, maybe there are those mythical 30 minutes that would just give us all the character stuff that's missing here. But it really does feel like, like, I, I think Asif Mandiv is good, but like most of his dialogue is just explaining, <laughs> you know, giving <laughs> exposition or explaining something or very ham-handedly. This is a very plot-focused movie. And I don't know if the plot as sort of shoved into one film is is ultimately interesting enough. And the structure is just so strange. And again, this is the result of just shoving a whole season of a TV show into a movie. But the whole climax is this. They start in the South Pole, basically. They travel across the Earth Kingdoms to get to the North Pole, which is the other water Mm -hmm. kingdom. And then the whole climax is at this North Pole water kingdom that we've like just met with these characters we've just met who are Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you know, I mean... like if you have not seen this movie there's really there's a scene where they just arrive there and katara in her voiceover is like oh my brother immediately became friends with the princess and they fell in love and then that's just the dynamic and within five minutes then they are in love and then she dies like we're really just getting what is clearly like basically just a written outline of plot points of the show told in exposition and i think the little princess soka love story might be the worst of all of those yeah so, and this is interesting to return to the question of bad adaptation choices, because actually, some of the moments where they more loosely adapted were some of the ones that functioned the most for me. Mm. The one that comes to mind right away is there's a scene where in the film, Uncle Iro tests Ang to see if he is the Avatar with these four yes. little objects. It's very Dalai Lama inspired. Yes. And they create that little moment. It gives you a very intimate like look at the bending dynamics before you see them in large explosive action it shows Eero's deep respect for all things spiritual and the avatar it puts our hero and these antagonists in the room in a quiet setting early on and yeah none of that is in the tv show And I thought it was a really cool and effective scene. And there were a few other things. This this sort of explicit angle about how the Avatar will change people's hearts. And that's part of what he needs to do, even if he's young. Um, It's in the hearts that all wars are won. That's new stuff. There are times in which it seems that they end up with a really messy result by their inability to change something. Like... They f- they follow the story of Princess Yue, who is the princess of the Northern Water Kingdom, Northern Water Tribe, who sacrifices herself to bring back the power of the moon. They follow that pretty much beat for beat from the show, except trimmed down. So instead of appearing over the course of three episodes, which is plenty of time in a TV show, she's only in that part of the movie. So her sacrifice doesn't hit at all in the movie. If they had decided instead to make that like one of their best friends from the Southern Water Tribe yeah. who came with them or like one of their like like a long lost family member who they've connected with before. If they just done something that was a looser adaptation, I think they could have come up with a more powerful beat. But instead they just do this and it it's like, oh, it, blink and you miss it. There yeah. was a new character. She's gone. She had a major I guess. love story. <laughs> I was told that she had an off-screen love story, so I guess I should be sad now that she's dying. I actually think that actress, though, Seychelle Gabrielle, 
Yeah. I actually think she is up there with Dev in terms of a person where I'm like, yeah, I can watch you and you are pleasant to watch. I agree. She has some tricky lines to deliver, but she is doing good work. <laughs> and and I don't know if you know, she goes on to perform in Legend of Korra. She I plays did a, see that. a character in that. Totally different character, uh, Asami Sato, and is great. I'm glad yeah. she was brought back into the fold. Yeah, she does plenty of good work on Korra, and they have a really special relationship that is interesting because it's it's one of those ones that's sort of discussed officially in kind of a similar to gay Dumbledore way. It is discussed even by the creators as a queer relationship between Korra and Asami, mm. even though you don't explicitly see it on screen, sure. but you know, the dynamic is there, but now I've gone very off topic. I mean, that's, it's that's not, not hard show. to do because as I think maybe we've established, there's not a ton to hang on to. In this what movie. are you liking in this movie? Um, <laughs> you, know on, Carol, you, gotta... you know what I liked? You know what I liked was, can I read you a quote from a Roger Ebert review that I think really did sum up <laughs> sure. my thoughts? I feel like you're not about to uh, answer my question in the spirit I that it was asked, but please read me this to. quote. <laughs> Here's from Roger Ebert. The Last Airbender is an, agoni- is an agonizing experience in every category I can think of and others still waiting to be invented. The laws of chance suggest that something should have gone right, not here. <laughs> that is like a, such a sick burn. <laughs> Eviscerated by Ebert. Uh, yeah, yeah, he, uh, he smacked him around a bit, didn't he? Um, I do. So like I said, I think Dev, the lady that plays the princess, those of the sta- of the young cast, I think those stand out. I do think the world building and the concepts of this are just so fun and great. Love anything that's elemental. It was blowing my mind the fact that ice was like folded into water, which like obviously ice is water, but I feel like if I were making a kingdom, mm-hmm. I would almost have make ice a separate kingdom from water. I was like, oh, this is so interesting that like so much of the water bending is about ice. You know what I'm saying? Do yeah. I sound like I'm stoned? Yeah. This was just somehow this was blowing my mind, this concept <laughs> of like ice and water being the same thing. So Even that was it changes fun. matter. There were parts where the score was good. I think the problem is that even the action scenes, I was struggling to get into them because I'm not sure that they find a great way to blend the martial arts component of the fighting with the like power elemental bending no. of the fighting. Because it feels like You're often right. what they do is like stand and pose or do what almost feels like a little dance routine. And then very slowly an element like a water glob will fall through the air or like, you know, there's a real <laughs> I feel like this is a part that fans frequently point out as hating, but there's a part where all the earthbenders do this whole like dance sequence and then literally one small like palm sized rock rises into the air and it goes about the speed it would go if you were just throwing it. And it's sort of like the amount of time it takes you to set up these, you know, like big powers. It's like you would just get taken out within that time. And then half the time they're not using their powers at all and they're just hand-to-hand fighting. And I never could quite get a grasp of like the rules of how everything worked together. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why I think the the dev and Ong fight scenes are somewhat satisfying mm-hmm. because you have on like jumping around although now honestly I, I can't even remember if i'm picturing a scene from the movie or sort of transposing action from the show and imagining how it would look like with the human actors yeah like i said i mean i watched this movie just a few days ago but it has it's so much of it has evaporated so hard to hold on to i mean i was watching clips this morning and i watched the movie yesterday and i'm already struggling when you like mentioned a certain fight scene i'm like oh i think i vaguely remember that um yeah. let's do a little more okay so there there's a 
like I said, when this movie came out and people were promoting it, it's their job to sell the movie. You had Dev in his younger days very much trying to defend this movie. What's interesting mm-hmm. is that in the past, it was actually on the sort of the press tour or the, the award season tour for Lion, where he much mm-hmm. more started opening up about his actual experience making this movie. Um, there is a, it, we'll tweet this out on our social media, I can link to it in our show notes, but there's a Hollywood reporter roundtable, one of those things where they just take a bunch of actors that are all in award seasons contentions and put them together. So it's him and Andrew yeah, Garfield and Jeff Bridges and Casey Affleck and Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Mahershala Ali are all together. Um, it's pretty long, but, you know, interesting. And there's some cuts that are just the dev stuff. Um, but at one point in it, they ask... They're just like, you know, what other kind of roles would you like to play? And the way Dev answers, and maybe I won't quote the whole thing, but he basically says, like, he doesn't know what he would like to play, but he knows that he's afraid of doing a big studio movie. And he's super diplomatic. He doesn't actually name The Last Airbender. But he says, um, after Slumdog, I went on and did a film that was not well received at all. The budget of Slumdog was like the budget of the craft services of this movie. And I completely felt overwhelmed by the experience. I felt like I wasn't being heard. And the idea of artistry or feeling connected to the character or the material wasn't there. That was really scary for me. And that's when I really learned the power of no, the idea of saying no. And he points out, like, he was only 18. There are all these adults that are being like, no, this sounds great. Like, just do this, do this. It'll all be great. Um, And he kind of regrets not having listened to his instinct there. And he goes on to say, because afterwards I came out of that and I saw a stranger on the screen that I couldn't really relate to. And I was just like, this is a terrible extension of me and this is not what I want to represent in any way. Um, And it is a fascinating moment in the conversation because then that leads to Jeff Bridges jumping in and talking about sort of, you know, he's been in stuff like Iron Man, but also stuff like Tron, like, you know, and then Andrew Garfield really jumps in and he basically says he felt a similar experience with his Spider-Man movies, feeling like he was so excited to do it and the whole thing just like spun out of his control for what he wanted. Um, So I like think it's really fascinating to hear like Dev speak so honestly about kind of what it's like to be in one of these big movies that doesn't do well, because I think it's like you're in such a tricky position when... It is your job to promote it and be a good sport and be a team player. And, I, you know, this happens all the time where actors are just have to figure out how to navigate that. And you think that he, you know, like was 18 when he was filming this, maybe 20 or so when he's promoting this. And like, what a big thing to have to figure out right on the heels of your sort of slumdog breakthrough. Yeah, when he's clearly so bummed about the movie, about the experience and the final product. That, that bums me out because it's just like... So nobody's happy with this movie. It's not like there's a lot of movies that are have similar Rotten Tomato ratings, but you sense that in some ways some of the people involved still feel like, oh, we did something neat there, and there's there's a there's a cult classic, there's a following that says, oh, well, it's all about this thing and this thing, and you know, there's all this cool bits to find, and it doesn't seem like like anybody is happy with this movie. Not the people who saw it, not the people who made it, not Roger Ebert, evidently. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that if there is a sort of like happy ending silver lining here, it's that it this for as much of a joke as this movie became, it also doesn't mm-hmm. fully seem to have like destroyed anyone's career. Do you know what I mean? Like we're saying M. Night Shyamalan mm-hmm. went on to find his groove again, even if he had to get through After Earth to do it, which if you want to talk about terrible movies, I think After Earth maybe rivals Last Airbender. But obviously Dev eventually went on to have his career success. I think even like, you know, Nicola, the the lady that plays Katara like she's gone on to have a career I mean Jackson Rathbone so the weekend last airbender opens it opens number two at the box office and number one is Twilight Eclipse 
So there was a week where Jackson Rathbone was in the, the first and second. And then this movie makes wow. money. You know what I mean? Like, and then and then they still go on to make Legends of Korra and the show's beloved. So for as much of as this movie is sort of, you know, disastrous and a punchline, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like one of those movies where it's like, oh no, and then it destroyed this someone's potential. And that, in a way that makes me feel less bad for sort of just ripping on it or making fun of it. Like it it does not feel yeah. like a something that sent someone down a dark path in a way it sort of is just this weird anomaly that frankly i think most people probably don't think about most of the time and if anything helped introduce a wider conversation about whitewashing to the general public like maybe that is sort of a unfortunate but maybe a sort of a net good that came out of this was people being more open to talking about stuff like that yeah well okay was that a more positive turn me around spin? on it a bit yeah that's a more positive spin it's a more positive spin well, uh, I was just going to say, I guess you have kind of already been doing this, but do you feel like there is like a pitch you want to give our listeners for why they should check out the last, the the TV show Avatar The Last Airbender, which I think is on Netflix currently, so very accessible to check out if you haven't checked it out before? I wonder if there's a way that I could find and link to a little, I think I saw it as like an Instagram style little series of well-made tiles, but Avatar The Last Airbender has a really amazing fan base. And, you know, I have a lot of dear friends who love it very much. And there's a lot of people out there in the fan base who have done really exceptional jobs, concisely explaining why and how to get into the show. I mean, I think I've said some of the things that really draw me to it. But I will attempt to find to find some way of linking to this nice little slide tile. But essentially, I'd say it is a thrilling well-structured, compelling story with a very diverse and interesting set of characters who are easy to invest very deeply in that uses extremely cool fantasy imagery and really well-devised action set pieces to advance its story. So what's not to like? (laughs) I'll also say... A lot of the facts I've said about it so far, one last little recommendation I want to give, a lot of the facts I've said about it so far are pulled from this sort of mega thread from a tweeter and author and general fan. Uh, I've only read their name, so I apologize. I may not get this exactly right, but um, Shiran J. Zhao, that's X-I-R-A-N. J-A-Y-Z-H-A-O on Twitter. If you search for their mega thread about cultural influences on Avatar The Last Airbender, it is the most astounding compendium of interesting facts and fun takes on the show to an extremely granular level, like moment by moment through seemingly every episode with screenshots pulled and everything. I mean, it was a must have been a massive effort to generate this mega thread, but... I read through it sometimes the way you would read through a coffee table book. I'll just go to a certain part of it and scroll for a little while. I mean, it would take at least an hour, I think, to read the whole thing. But, you know, you can just go and go. It's so fun. Um, They are just one of many great fans out there who can help you to invest in the show. And I will also then just throw out the little caveat. If you have a low tolerance for goofy kids showy stuff unfortunately the pilot itself is the one where that actually reaches a level that i find annoying it's kind of like my college roommate tony who introduced me to this made some comment about well 
because this is a Nickelodeon show, they had to contractually include a scene where Sokka gets slimed in the first episode. <laughs> and there's like 60% more goofy sound effects and things. But it settles into its groove in the first few episodes. And then it just continues to build over the course of the show. And where it is at by the season three finale is just jaw-dropping. I got hung up on the episode. There's like an episode where there's like a lot of slides or like sliding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably the third episode, The King of Amashu. Yeah, that one was, not that it put me off the show entirely, but that was like, okay. And I can really equate this to, like, I grew up loving Star Trek, which I think is another show that it's not as explicitly aimed as kids as Avatar is, but certainly feels more kid-friendly than a lot of sci-fi you'd get today. And you have mm-hmm. often, like, here's a one-off episodic adventure that doesn't really have to do anything with the main story in as much as they're in a main story in some of the series. And I was like, okay, I'm I'm understanding the structure of this. Like, sometimes you're just going to have one-offs. But for some reason, that slightly put me off on the series. But you have now convinced me, Ned, that I should go back and give actually give this show a go. I think if you can get through eight episodes, which includes the first two-parter, mm-hmm. uh, The Winter Solstice, part one and two, episodes seven and eight, by then, you can see what I think makes this show special and a little bit more of the tone it's going to settle into yeah. for the bulk of the show. Although, I will say, surprises and new elements continue to arrive constantly over the course of the show. So it's not as if you ever are fully settled in knowing what to expect. But the first few are slow going, I think, sometimes for an adult viewer who is not entirely sold on the premise. Mm-hmm. But if you get up through the first two-parter, I think you're either going to dig it or not dig it at that point. I do like that it's just the three seasons. Like, that makes it feel contained yep. and accessible. Yep. You're not three seasons, 20, epo- 20 episodes per, and the episodes are about 22 minutes long. Yeah. So it's doable. Um, okay, have you spent your time wisely figuring out what kind of bender I am? Oh, no, I got completely <laughs> off. The key to that... Would be uh, season two, episode nine. Okay. And I do have a guide pulled up right now. I don't have these all memorized. I wish but... you. Let's just pretend you do. Okay. So <laughs> I believe it was season two, episode nine, in which Uncle Iroh explains to Zuko in kind of a longer form monologue about what characterizes the mm. four nations. There are, I will say, the characters behind. So the. What you see first in this movie after an extremely overlong text drop is this sort of red background scene of four people in silhouette doing the four different types of bending. An image that I find really beautiful to behold because it is a reproduction of the opening from the show quite faithfully. And I find, I should say, I think I find the visual effects team in this movie, I think they should be proud as well. Although one thing that I did learn in that uh, Shiran J. Zhao mega thread is that there are characters, there are Chinese characters written behind the four figures in the television show. And in the movie, they have just been changed to meaningless symbols. Mm. Um, yes, and there was even a comment from they brought in a uh, cultural consultant named Xu uh, Lung Li for the TV show, which is part of a trend of the TV show is often – it is worth discussing the ways in which it is appropriative. I mean, it is done in a Japanese animation style, pulling elements from many Asian cul- cultures, and yet was its leadership, and I believe much of its staff was, you know, white American – 
cartoonists. Mm-hmm. That said, I think they did made good efforts to research, consult with, and to credit the you know a number of people who were actually experts in the cultures that things were being modeled upon. And you know, Sifu Kisu is a sort of a major figure in this. He's the guy who basically designed all of the martial arts for the show based on these four different styles. Anyway, all this was to say, the master cartographer says, I just received words from the movie producers. They are not going to use Chinese calligraphy at all, replacing it with unreadable symbols. I won't be participating in the movie. It is not only a disappointment on the cast. They are removing all the successful elements of the original TV series. I think that would keep a lot of Asian audience away. I am disappointed to learn that the Avatar movie has removed the successful cultural elements of the original Avatar TV series. Whether this is a right decision will be seen in the box office. And he was to a certain extent right. Although, yeah. as you said, the box office was good, but I think history has decided that this was, this was one of the many right mistakes. All this was to say, Caroline, that the original symbols behind them. Let me read the tweet from Shiran J. Zhao. So, right away in the background writing of the opening sequence, each element is accompanied by a characteristic that generalizes their nation. Water is kindness, earth is strength, fire is passion, and air is harmony. Whoa! Wait, say them one more time. Water is kindness, kindness, earth is strength, fire is passion, and air is harmony. And those concepts are explored at greater length than the TV show. And everyone contains all the elements. And as the show goes on, as I mentioned, uh, the fullness of each people's identity mm-hmm. is really explored. And so, you know, you, Caroline, you are kind, strong, passionate, oh and God. harmonious. Thank you so much, Ned. But I hope you will not be Uh-oh. troubled by my saying, I think you might be a fireman. <gasps> wow. That was not what I was expecting. Mainly, I just, re- this is not based on what you just said, but just in general, I just really didn't want to be an earthbender. So I'm so glad you didn't make <laughs> me an earthbender. <laughs> no one does. Um, there was someone was in college. Who I was extremely convinced was an earthbender mm-hmm. based on her strength, but she did not agree <laughs> or appreciate at least that in assessment. This movie, you don't get—I mean, to use the word avatar—you don't get an avatar for that people in the same way. It's like okay, Zuko's yeah. fire, and Aang mm-hmm. is air, and Katara is water. It's sort of like, and then Earth. And, I mean, they very much feel like the Hufflepuffs in terms of like, oh, and then those other people are there too, but don't worry about them too much. Yes. Oh, and so the the second season, a lot of it. The, the longest time they spend in any one place is in the, the famous walled city in the Earth Kingdom of Ba Sing Se. And the stuff they do there is just exquisite. Uh, just so interesting. But um, no, I don't think you're an earthbender, although you are strong. I think you are a firebender. So if I'm fire and you're water, does that mean we're like opposites? Is that how mm, it works? I, in a sense. I did but you know like what? the Katara versus Zuko fight and how they sort of were like constantly yeah. at each other. So maybe our podcast is that, but in a in a less conflict-ridden way, but we're sort of maybe. meeting each other with different forces. You know, the four the four elements, this is why it's so good that it is the character of Uncle Iroh who explains these. You know, he explains they are not in their natural form hostile forces to sure. each other. They exist in harmony. So, yeah, I think my uh, – your fiery wow. personality and my wow. watery personality. Wow. Maybe. This is blowing my mind. I love anything where you can – I mean, this is really half the appeal of Harry Potter. It's just like let's sort people into four categories. and Totally. My love of the Enneagram and, system, which is a similar idea of sorting people into nine categories. Oh, yeah. You really do. Yeah. 
What's my? Let's not do the enneagrams. No. We'll, we'll save that for we'll a future save it for episode. Another time. <laughs> um, great. Okay. Do we have other things we want to say about this? Maybe other dev specific related things. I mean, it, I guess it really is the you know, as he said, his really one one go with a big studio movie, and he has largely, probably partially by choice, and and maybe partially not by choice, avoided those since then. Yeah, I can see how he feels like this movie got away from him because the the performance i do think feels a little fractured it does not feel I, 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 particularly having that comment i feel i can look at this movie and see here is a moment where he is pursuing one sort of goal but here's another moment where he's just on a large action set having to get those lines out in a way to move a mm-hmm. a set piece along and and he's not really getting to dig into it. I don't know much about his acting process. And frankly, because some of the movies that we're going to discuss, this will be the... Oh, yeah, because I hadn't seen this. I'd seen like a few clips of this. But I guess Slumdog Millionaire was the only Dev Patel movie that we're going to discuss that I have seen. So you have lots to discover. I do. I th- you and know I'm I... really looking forward to tracing the sort of lines through his Career. his work. Yeah, and his and his way of working, his... You know, how he generates and develops a character. Yeah. Well, one thing I was going to say real quick is I think maybe part of the reason I appreciated this performance is because I had seen him in Skins, as we talked about in our previous episode, which is his first on-camera experience where he feels very goofy and very broad. And he's giving a much better performance than sort of the – even the not good performances in Avatar, like even the sort of the mm-hmm. main trio that I don't like. I think even mm-hmm. in Skins, Dev is better than they are. But it's more of that equivalent of like, I don't know if I feel comfortable being on camera. I'm just kind of trying a lot of things. And I think mm-hmm. he feels like he's grown a lot since then, even if this isn't the best performance in Last Airbender. Like he feels much more comfortable in terms of being like internal and not feeling the need to broadcast everyone. So having seen him at maybe his earliest and least formed, even this sure. middle ground, of airbender i'm like yeah dev like you've come a long way since where you started out in your broadest goofiest capacity and so i can appreciate your like attempt to be an angsty villain even if maybe there's a reason he has not gone on to play other angsty villains because maybe that just is not the cornerstone of how he reads on screen Mm. yeah it's it is an interesting to cast him in that role but i don't think it's a bad fit inherently i think it's just something i i don't at all think that is like a doomed from the start casting. I think it just feels like parts of it he is able to develop in a specific way, usually in some of his smaller scenes, particularly with uh, Sean Tube as Uncle Iroh. Yes. And parts of it just feel very generic. Who is, I know I'm really derailing us, but did you know that Sean Tobe played, he's the guy from Iron Man. Jensen. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I didn't recognize that that beard in Iron Man really makes him look different. I like really didn't mm-hmm. recognize him in this until after the fact. Yeah, he's in the MCU. Yeah, he's just got to like open the door for <laughs> get. We'll get Dev in is. there <laughs> yeah. if Dev ever is not afraid of studio movies again. Um, okay, so as we mentioned, you know, after this movie came out, there was just a real question of where does Dev go from here, and I think he enters this. I mean, I don't know if it's quite a fallow period, but I think he does not have the big breakthrough experience that other equivalent actors have. And actually, one thing I wanted to point out, because our the last person we covered was Emily Blunt, and she has her big breakthrough, which she's also pretty young, in 2006 in Devil Wears Prada, so just a couple of years before Slumdog Millionaire. So between when Emily Blunt 
stars in Devil Wears Prada and then when she's doing Jungle Cruise this summer, she makes 33 movies. And for Dev, between when he makes Slumdog and when he's doing Green Knight this summer, he only does 14 movies. So, wow. you know, obviously, like, any any two people you pick, that's not enough of a, you know, a scientific sample size. But just sort of anecdotally, you have a case of one person getting virtually double, more than double the opportunity that a different actor did. Now, part of this is because Dev spent three years on the Aaron Sorkin HBO drama The Newsroom. That was one of the big things he did between um, after Last Airbender, although on that show he's playing, like, the sixth or seventh, you know, member of an ensemble. It wasn't like, here's Dev's big prestige hbo series yeah which i see from twitter you are starting i own that it has been a that is a a the definition of an unhinged show and i really i started just watching some clips to be like oh what was dev like on this again and that led into me probably spending the rest of the day just marathoning the newsroom (laughs) because i have a weird relationship to aaron sorkin where even bad aaron sorkin i really enjoy watching um, but yeah, Dev after Last Airbender is really, I think it's just like a question mark period of his career. And I would say it's very much to his credit that he has been able to sort of wrestle back a path to leading man fame that maybe seemed like it wasn't open to him. And that really happens with the next movie we're going to cover, which is Gareth Davis's 2016 biographical drama Lion, which really sort of transforms Dev into a leading man. It's also the movie that earns him his Oscar nomination. So sort of a really big one for his career. And just based on the interviews I've sort of been checking out, seems like a really big one for him just like as a person and an artist, like very transformative. So I'm really looking forward to revisiting that. I know you said you're going to check it out for the first time. We have a wonderful guest joining us next week, which we are super excited about. But for now, we will bid adieu to the last airbender i can't imagine you or i are ever going to be revisiting this movie again (laughs) hey life is long i never know but i certainly do not currently have any desire to see it anymore true well roll calling is produced and recorded by us caroline Sita, a firebender and ned baker a waterbender our theme music was created by patrick buddy and our logo was designed by nick wanserski we'll have to reach out to them and see what kind of benders they are you can follow us on twitter we are at roll calling or email us rollcalling at gmail.com that's roll r-o-l-e you can also leave us a rating and review on the apple podcast app we would much appreciate it next week we'll be back to look at dev patel's leading man breakthrough in lion Until then, we need to show the Fire Nation that we believe in our beliefs as strongly as they believe in theirs.